listening to Nerds on Film with Brian Moriarty, Sarah Ashley, Sean Moriarty, and Roxy Noberry. We interrupt this episode for an important nerdonomy update. Folks, Aunt Teresa has been in the building. Oh my god. And Us panic ensues. Yeah, for those who don't know who Aunt Teresa is, yes, it's Eric's aunt. One of our founding partners' relatives. However, but she has donated considerable money to she our company. She has a generous benefit. And she has been a listener since day one of yeah. both podcasts Aww. consistently. We owe the Nerd Cave in part. She's to our her sugar mom in a way. She's, yeah. she's just been a really, really good pillar of support for us. And this yeah. was um, pretty much all of our first time actually meeting her, aside from Eric, obviously. Mm. So that was pretty. And she got, met Sean through Skype. Which was cool. <clears throat> that was I know. yeah, and I met her yesterday. The first time I met her was through a video message from Eric. Oh yes, mm. yes, that was that was sent to all of us. It was pretty spectacular, and I believe Brian's pulling it up so he can play it. Yeah, I know this is kind of like listener feedback a little early, but oh well. <laughs> no, he's just turning my phone. Oh, you're, on. you're gonna play it? I can play oh, it. We I want to play it. Play it. Can we play I'm it. Gonna I got play it right it. here. Yeah, play it. It's good. Play it. It's so funny. Fucking play it. Get <laughs> <laughs> <Play it> ready, <laughs> man. Stairway. <laughs> fucking do it. Okay, here we go. Is there alcohol in your burrito? Hi, nurse. This is Aunt Teresa. I just wanted to say how much I love all of you guys listening to you. Uh, my only my only complaint is I'm really sick of hearing about Sean's penis. But other than that, um, all the other content Truth. is really great, and I hope to hear a lot more from you guys. Bye. <laughs> to which so I think cute. I replied, Aunt Teresa is my favorite. She's my mom. <laughs> She's kind of like, I love that she just called it out. Like, I'm really sick of hearing about John's penis. So, well, because if of you guys that, had such a gripe with my dick, you could have talked to it directly. It has a receptionist. <laughs> it takes appointments. It takes appointments. But, but Sean, because of this, I yes. mean... What has I know. You, so, have, you have a big announcement for us. This is a huge announcement. I am going to be retiring... The use of my dick in jokes. In jokes, everybody. In jokes. Let's clarify. See, exactly in you're jokes. the use of his dick <laughs> something in horrifying and or awesome happens to my penis that is of note. You may hear about it, but I'm not just going to throw jokes out around about it willy-nilly, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Well, it's true. I'm glad to hear that you're retiring only the comic use of it because that would make your fiance very unhappy. So. Yes. Yeah. And, and... We have also decided that we needed some sort of symbol. And so Sarah has agreed to a craft project. I have. I have. And what I, is that, Sarah? So in hockey, uh, when a notable... <laughs> so in hockey. In hockey. <laughs> so in hockey. When a notable player retires, A they, notable player? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to call it now. Uh, has anybody seen my notable player? <laughs> my Bobby Orr? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hey, 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 where's the great one? Huh? Oh, Jesus. Um, so when a, when a, a notable player retires, they hang the jersey in the stadium. And so I'm going to be crafting a wee hockey jersey for... <laughs> a wee, not, but a long <laughs> hockey jersey, for apparently. For Sean's penis. And we will be hanging it uh, in the nerd cave as a symbol of his contributions to nerdonomy. <laughs> Uh, he will never be forgotten. Sean <laughs> has requested. Oh my Sean God. has requested. It, when I do, if I ever leave here, my resume for Nerdonomy, it's like things done. And it's gonna say... <laughs> made considerable dick jokes. Dick jokes. No, it's gonna say dick contributions. Dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be just a thing on there. They're gonna be like, um, what? what? 
does this <laughs> is dick like an acronym for something or no it's my penis it's my penis, I can uh, my penis true to form sean has requested that the specifications for the jersey are approximately two and a half inches wide and six 14 inches, inches long 14 <laughs> inches oh i'm sorry i missed that memo my apologies <laughs> it's wow. the kind of if you guys have wondered what do we share around the office at nerdonomy this is that what we is talk it? about <laughs> on official nerdonomy email <laughs> folks <laughs> This is, Thank this you is for your support. You're paying business. for dick jokes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my we god! We have oh fun. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm in pain right you now. You guys I'm gotta stop hard. with this because you're tearing me apart. <laughs> oh, that's that is good. We could well just segue done, off dude. of that. Well, dude. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nerds on Film. I'm Brian Moriarty. I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Roxy Noberry. And I'm Sean Moriarty. So you're tearing me apart. Does anybody know what that quote is from? I got it. 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 It's from the room. Lisa, bitch. Son of bitch, Lisa. Lisa. You're telling me about Lisa. No, of course, it's also, I think where it derives from is Rebel Without a Cause. Ding, 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 ding. A very, very notable movie. Yes, an what? overrated show, I say. Uh, well, that's your opinion. Oh, so shit. we're, here we're we not go throwing already. it down just yet. Let's let's set up the story here. So yeah. James Dean oh. at this point had he already had one movie in the can. East of Eden. Two movies in the can. I yeah, he had done Giant and then nope. East of Eden. Nope. East of Eden first, right? Yep. yep. And then it was giant. Yes. No. East of Eden. It's East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and okay. Giant. Yes. Thank However, you. yes. So um, and Rebel he died one month after East, uh, Rebel Without a Cause was released. I thought it was yeah. he died in one month before it was released. Because I think both of those movies were consult released posthumously, right? The wait, 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 so wait. We need to consult. We need to consult. Hold on. Wikipedia. We need, we need silence. <laughs> we, need to, we are consulting, we need to consulting the, things. the runes. <laughs> it says, the runes. yeah. Brian's got the upper hand on this Damn one. Damn it. Warner <laughs> Brothers released the film on October 27th, 1955, less than one Breach. month after Dean's Fatal Car right. Crash. Okay. Oh, shit. So, and mm. then um, I think he, but he earned his Oscars yeah. for East of Eden and Giant, right? I think or, it was just East of Eden. He was just nominated for East of Eden as well as for, let's see, the film has achieved landmark status for acting as a cultural icon, mm-hmm. James Dean, fresh from his Academy Award nominated role in East of Eden. Okay, so he was nominated for East of Eden, but uh-huh. he won an Academy Award uh, after his death. That's so, correct. And yeah. he's the only actor to receive two posthumous act- Academy Award nominations. Yes. Yes. So I assume the second one was for Giant. Okay. Yeah. Um, but still, I mean, really, James Dean, effective. I mean, he's had several, he had several TV appearances and other small, small roles in movies, but and the, the big three, when you're talking about James Dean, it's it's East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and Giant. And yeah. <clears throat> um, I think Rebel Without a Cause is probably the most popular out of all mm-hmm. it's definitely mm-hmm. the most iconic yeah for mul- for a multitude of reasons is you know partly yes because it's james dean and he's now become an icon above himself sure there's um, a couple other reasons too right but it's also very thematic yeah the theme and this movie is like the quintessential teen angst movie in fact it, arguably the first one probably not there's probably a few before that but this is the one that that resonates the most throughout the decades i, I would say brian when we were kind of like chatting earlier about the movie you were kind of having Issues with it. <laughs> yes, I was yes, having. He was issues. having issues Lightly. with it, and yes. he and he had said something. You had said something where it was like, 
you know, where some people kind of said that this movie was like 60 years ahead of its time, but you thought it was maybe 60 years premature. Um, you just didn't feel like, you just didn't really like it. And I actually think that this movie was right on time because it's post Catcher in the Rye. And if you mm. look at Rebel Without a Cause within the context of Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield is a very, very similar character to Jim Stark in the sense that they are kind of embodying that teenage angst thing. And, teen- and Catcher in the Rye was so popular because it was kind of the first time that ever came out. Rebel Without a Cause would not have been possible if it wasn't for Catcher in the Rye. And so I think that because that momentum shift of how we look at teenagers and how vocal teenagers are willing to be as we're starting to get into the beat moment movement and everything like that. Well, we're going to get to that. We're yeah. going get, get to get to that. And what you're saying is yeah. totally valid. So, but that, but it goes them, in, but yeah. it goes into the theme. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I get I get right what you're that. saying and and you have that and that's totally valid. Mm-hmm. What I meant by when I said that this movie was 60 years premature and not 60 years ahead of its time is that I felt the script was so undeveloped by the time they had shot the movie that it was too soon. I think the script mm. needed another two rewrites before it got made. Okay, well, let's talk about the development of the film, per se. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the movie was originally, it was kind of throwing around, it was shelved as a story back in the 1940s. Um, and finally, as it came to, uh, I believe it was, it was Irvin Shulman who wrote the script based off of Steve, Stuart Stern's story that he had written. And the title of the film actually derives itself, oddly enough, from a totally unrelated book. And I think Roxy was going to bring up what it was. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. So it's based off of a book by a psychiatrist named Robert M. Lin- Lidner. And it was done in 1944. And it's called Rebel Without a Cause, the Hypoanalysis of a Criminal Psychopath. <laughs> Which is very interesting because it makes you kind of wonder who's the title really about in this I movie. Know. Yeah, it's. I don't think it's about... I don't think it's Jim Do Stark. you guys find yeah. it interesting that... The writers took this book, and I don't know what the book is about. I don't know if it's about teenagers. I don't know if it's about a mastermind, whoever it's about. They took it and made it about teenagers, though. They yeah. made it about rebellious teens. And yeah. They made it a book. They made it a story that centered on a social commentary mm-hmm. about how teens and parents have a total disconnect, and how the generations yeah. there are disconnected. And that's awesome. Yeah. That's a that's a conversation sure. that wasn't be, wasn't exactly being had, or yeah. I mean, it was starting to be had at that moment. Yeah. So like, let's embody that in a it's film. Just like criminal psychopaths and teenagers. Well, though? so first of all, <laughs> there's a reason why they don't do the full title; they just do the first half, right? And it's also the reason why the film has quotes around it. Sure. The film's title because it they're, they're literally that is the only thing from the book that they took was the title. I'd hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing else. Was used for the movie. In fact, Warner Brothers bought the rights to the to the book purely for that reason. Wow! Because they just liked the title, they wanted to put it on a movie. Fair enough, then. So this movie, to me, I get the intentions of the director. I get the intentions of what they were trying to do, and of course, what was going on in the country. And we'll get to that in just mm-hmm. a moment. That being said, I feel like this was a, a manufactured effort by Warner Brothers um, for a couple different reasons. Yes, I gl- I'm glad that they're trying to bring up that conversation mm-hmm. of and make the teens the protagonists, mm-hmm. but at the same time, yeah. they're also they cartoonishly, in my opinion, portray the adults as aloof and disconnected from reality. They make police look completely inept when there's the scene where he comes and tries to, you know, tell them what's going on with yeah. Buzz. Yeah, and they're not listening. I have the yep. Which is farcical. Oh, I mean, and that, and I would buy that if the rest, if it fit with the rest of the tone of the movie, and it doesn't. So that's why I take issue with it. I, I'll just kind of leave it at that. So I feel like yeah, I agree with you on all those points. At the same, in the same vein, it's really the melodrama. 
Mm-hmm. That was portrayed in Thank this. Thank you. It's very it melodramatic. Done yes. so well. Yeah. It reminds me of how Spring Awakening, the musical. Thank you. I thought the same done thing. Just like that. Yeah. Teens responded so strongly to the melodrama. Adults were like, "This is completely farcical." What are they? Well, they're like, to "This is my nightmare." Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Spring Awakening at least manages to balance the melodrama with humor. In this movie, there's like no, there's only one scene where there's a little bit of joy going on. And that's where you have James Dean's performance to give the movie still credibility. Go ahead. Sean, what do you think of this? I actually really enjoyed it. I didn't, I saw what Brian's saying about the kind of farcical portrayal of the police and the adults. But the way I was watching it was from the point of view of a young person watching it in the 50s. And that, I think, was something that was you know, something people thought, you know, like, no, the cops, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Adults don't know what the hell they're talking about. And I think for the audience it was directed towards, I kind of saw it the way that they saw it. And I mean, it was well received at the time. Yeah. Well, I, I can I can understand the the idea of saying that it's a little farcical, but I also think that the portrayal of the teenagers, with the exception of Jim Stark, I think that they're pretty farcical in themselves. I agree. Like, the the bullies and everything. And I think what it is, it's kind of like if you take the core three characters, mm-hmm. Jim and Judy and Plato, mm-hmm. they are kind of operating here in in a time that they just don't see. They cannot possibly fathom how other people function. Sure, they're, they're just they're self centered. Yeah, they're but they're and so I think the idea of if you kind oh. of if you put it in the sense of maybe this story is kind of being narrated by them mm. or or being portrayed through their perspective. Mm-hmm then it makes sense as to why the cops seem so inept, why the dad, like Jim's dad, seems so misguided and without a without even an ounce of a moral yeah without an ounce yeah. of moral compass yeah. and stuff and you you get hints of that in the sense that this is some one of a fantasy portrayal of yeah. dysfunctional families mm-hmm. in the scene when they're in the mansion yeah and they kind of play the pretend family mm-hmm. and you know you have Jim and Judy playing yeah. the couple and then Plato's their kid and they yeah. have that whole fantasy first the real scene. estate agent then becomes yeah. the kid sure 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 <laughs> yeah. in that sense so I think yeah this film really did kind of have that intention from the start. Yeah. That this is going to be one teen's portrayal of what they and view. It's, and it's very day in the life. Yeah. Sure. And actually, that, that pool scene was the only scene I really liked. I agree with you that the characters are all kind of farcical. And maybe that speaks more to my point. Is That's what I mean by this is a manufactured effort. At no point in the movie did I feel... The only character I really cared about was Plato. Okay. And at no point did I feel like this was an honest portrayal of teen angst i felt like it was a manufactured portrayal of teen angst Mm. based on an adult who really didn't know what he was talking about but based it off of the examples he was seeing Mm -hmm. around them without doing enough research to really understand what was going on what is it about plato that you responded to the most i feel like he's the one that we really care about because he's the one who has the most uh wrong with him for he has the most he's the most flawed Conflict, character yeah exactly yeah he i mean a- for god's sakes the movie opens and when you see the, all three of them in the police station when plato's being interrogated the first thing the cop asks him is son why did you shoot those puppies oh, and it's just yeah. like what so, the fuck so that's maybe maybe context for time but i really that was what instantly put me off on this kid is troubled mm-hmm. and does not belong in this situation in this neighborhood without parents. Like, th- like yeah. this kid needs to be under some psychological yeah. care. Yeah. And I think <laughs> and I think Warner Brothers was trying to make this movie talk about the moral decay yeah. of American youth. So Plato plays to that. Yeah. So does so in a degree, so do the, the, the gang and Jim and Judy's characters. But um 
even though he has uh, clearly psychological issues and clearly needs attention, he's also, in a way, yes, he's troubled, but he's also the one who's least likely to do anything dramatic. Yes, he's trying to defend himself. That's why he gets the gun in the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. Um, but I also don't feel like he's actually going to do anything. Like, I know that he has harmed animals, but I don't see himself he, at this point harming humans. It didn't come I, across that way. Uh, no, I think when somebody gets into a point of, of getting into that reaction of what, how do I get out of the situation? And he went to the, he went to fight before flight was even considered. Yeah. And that is where I have a problem. Well, it's fight or flight. That's why we. <laughs> I know it's fight or flight, but I'm saying he's old enough to have that consideration of can I just yeah. get it? How do, how can I run away from the situation? Before he even had that option, he was just like, I'm going to take this gun. Exactly. And I'm I just gonna, because when I get to this position, I'm gonna shoot. I disagree because he he ran from the gang initially, and they attacked him and. So now he felt obligated to defend himself, but now he's defending himself against the world. And I think that speaks to his fragile psychological state. By that point, he was so freaked out that he would be—he was defending against everything. I, I'm not saying he's not a sympathetic character. I'm just saying his choices are really terrible. And yeah. and I think maybe maybe they did go into this saying, okay, this is going to be a movie about the decay of youth in our culture, but then. Ultimately, what they ended up doing was, I think, speaking to a greater truth. And I mm. think that was unintentional, maybe. Maybe that's why it felt a little manufactured, but I think, like... What greater truth do you think? <clears throat> about The truth was. about the disconnect between parent, between parent and child, about mm. teen angst, and about having a complete lack of control when you are at that in-between phase between mm. child and adult. So no wonder the writers kind of got it completely wrong. In a way, it's almost meta. Yeah. yeah. It's like they're making a movie about parents understanding their kids, where you have adults writing a movie about kids and completely almost making it f- seem false. Sean, what do you think? Well, I was hoping that um, I think we've we've talked about our philosophical opinions on <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i just want to start picking apart other things in the movie uh for example why do all teenagers in 1955 look 32 years old <laughs> oh well, because james dean was 24 when he, he filmed was 24 it. when he, <laughs> yeah, he was a hard 20 he was a carton of cigarettes a week 24 yeah no kidding because he like he doesn't he does not look same reason they make every you know teen heartthrob movie for sexual appeal yeah Yeah. Yeah. and oh my god is he sultry in this movie the whole reason the movie got turned into color is because james dean star was rising during that time and they wanted to appeal to a larger audience so they reshoot they re-shot the fucking movie in color and to be totally (laughs) honest i think it actually would have worked better in black and white i mean i get why they did it the quality of it they were they were aiming for it to just be a b-level movie yeah so i think yeah, the a lot version, of yeah go ahead the John. version i saw was color mm-hmm. yeah and it looked good it didn't it didn't remind me of like you know turner early colorization like yeah no i'm actually saying garbage. that what they did um while they were shooting it shooting is they started out shooting it in black and white and then oh. they quickly transitioned into color because they realized oh, wait okay. we've got something it was gold released here. in black and white. yeah no they reshot oh, no. all the all the stuff they did in black and white. they only had a few scenes to reshoot in black and white but, in, I mean, color. the impact of then having the red jacket at the end mm-hmm. in color, that wouldn't have translated well into film. They weren't. They were going to make him a nerd. They were going to give him a brown coat and glasses. Oh. But then when they decided to shoot it in color, they said, wait, no, let's put a red jacket on him. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that's an awesome. That's an iconic red jacket um, right there. Right? So w- let's take a second. And I think you know, the, the point that was made to me when I was watching the movie is that try to look at it in the context of when it was, was made. Okay. 
So let's take a second and let's address the context. Okay, and I think that'll lead us into picking apart some of the elements in the movie. The year is 1955. So, yeah, so we're going to explain why they all look 32, because you had to get 32-year-olds <laughs> to be in the film, because children, well, they were worried about their studies. Yes. Maybe enlisting in the army. <laughs> well, with the exception Walking of Salmineo. looks is the only person who actually looks believable Yeah, who's that? Salmineo? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you know he also looks Salmonella? like Ralph Macchio <laughs> and David Crumholtz had a baby. <laughs> you want to know the tragic part about Natalie Wood and Salmoneo and James Dean? Mm. Is they all died prematurely. They did oh, all that's true. Yeah. This Salmoneo. movie is cursed, I tell you, yeah. cursed. Seriously. It's a real tragedy, man. No, it is very, very sad. But yeah, um, no, let's let's contextualize it, absolutely. Yeah, so it's the mid-50s, we've got, you know, traditional values, but we're also transitioning into a new era. The idea of yeah. the American dream is yeah. taking off. Right, yeah. so you got a couple things going on. Yes, you've got the American dream and this whole, that's really where it took shape, right? You had the idea of living in the suburbs, having your house with the white picket fence and the mm-hmm. dog and all that stuff. Um, keeping up appearances. Keeping up appearances. And that speaks more to what this movie is about, too. This movie is about the conflict, the essential conflict of the movie is conformity versus self-expression. Totally. And what the movie does well, to its credit, is it does show how that conflict exists with every single character in the film. Yeah. Uh, all Of every character of note. The cops, eh, not really. But, um... When well, they still have to kind of keep up the appearance that they've got control of, of the situation Especially of the law. The, uh, the sergeant in the beginning mm-hmm. of the film. Yeah, the way he t- approaches Jim. Yeah. yeah. And he tries to, you know, father him and, you know, sympathize with him. But right. he really has no, no... He's got no control over this kid no, at all. And none at all. Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, and I think what's also really, really true is you're starting to see the breakdown of the, the quote-unquote happy marriage to or the quote-unquote happy family, right? So you've got Jim's family... Jim's dad, who can't stand up for himself because the mother is very overbearing and controlling. And being ganged up on by the mother-in-law. Exactly. Mm. And I don't know what that's supposed to represent, but at this point in time, there was a lot of women who were having domestic issues and hiding it. There was a high amount of suicide rates amongst housewives. Sylvia Plath, man. Yeah. But you've also got Judy's parents, the father who doesn't want to give her any affection anymore because Mm. she's she's an adult now, quote-unquote. And the boy, the, her yeah, little brother. Who was, is, you know. who was super cute. Yeah. And the mother's just kind of non-existent. Exactly. In there. And then you've also got... Plato's family. Thank you. John, John or no, Plato's family, who's non-existent. Mm-hmm. He's basically being raised by his maid, mm-hmm. uh, who obviously loves him and cares about yeah. him very, very dearly, um, but just isn't his mother. Apparently isn't the his... actress who played that maid, this was her last role before her untimely death as well. Oh, wow. my, God. Oh my God. Is there anybody in this movie who didn't have an untimely death? Unfortunately not. It's actually pretty... This movie Damn. kind of cursed a lot of major players. Um, even Dennis Hopper. <laughs> wow. He yeah. died later on, but he died from an unspecified illness in 2009, I think. I think it was yeah. cancer. I thought he had like some... Like five months after the diagnosis, though. Yeah. Right. Very, That's very... how fast he went. Um, that being said, though, yeah, no. Plato's so you're basically what you're saying is this movie it was like a real-life Final Destination. <laughs> or like... <laughs> like some shit happened on the set, and then Death has just been chasing around ever since Dude, then. like, you know how The Exorcist was cursed? Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Rebel Without a Cause is cursed, Now, too. I think there was, like, definitely some... <sighs> I don't know. I feel like there was definitely some kind of challenge or maybe forced acceptance. I I don't know. There was definitely gender roles and familiar roles at play Mm -hmm. in this. And like kind of the idea that, you know, a man should step up, like stand up for himself and hold hold himself for his family. And I, I absolutely believe that there should be strong moral figures in families 
that's what parents are about. But why is that all on the dad? And I also like it was really frustrating. There was one scene where um, the mom wasn't feeling well. Mm-hmm. She legitimately wasn't feeling well. And the dad goes to like take her food in bed, which is a very nice thing to do. He spills the food. And he's like, oh, darn, I have to clean it up now. And then and Jim's like, don't clean it up. They're like, what? Your Let mom is it. sick, you yeah. ass. I don't care if she's like mean kind of most of the time. She is sick. She's clearly not going to clean it what up. What is she sick with, though? You remember that he was wearing the apron. Yeah. And the apron is what set Jim off. Yeah, yeah. I know. And, know? and okay, dumb. that speaks to a couple other things that were going on at this point in time. <sighs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, yes, you obviously have the rebel culture and you have the beat culture, which is right. kind of what the teen characters are really identifying with in this movie. But you've also got a stigma against, uh, one, homosexuality. Yeah, sure. In the film. And so the any idea of a man looking effeminate uh, is shunned, and which is like why Jim is so angry yeah. at his dad yeah. for work, for basically playing the mom. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was an implication that the character was closet or not, but um, I don't think it. I don't think that was the case. I think it was more of a reactivity toward Jim's yeah. just general distaste of his parents. I I, I kind of wow. read from the mom that not that she was sick. I mean, she mm. said she was sick, but I got the impression she was sick. She was sick, quote unquote, because yeah. she was having some sort of addiction problem. That's Maybe. Yeah. Well, really? Some sort yeah. of alcohol. What was she addicted to? Because she wasn't an alcoholic. She wasn't Look alcoholic. The- she. They were in the beginning. They were saying like she was condemning drink. Mm. Yeah, but she might have been doing you know some but other kind defense. of drug. That's also it's the fifties. There, she was all fucked up on speed. Notice that. Notice yeah, that the tray so. he's cleaning up. Everything was broken. So it was probably thrown at him for him trying to, to take care of her. Ooh, that's deep. We're going way too deep. Yeah, with this, guys. yeah. That's so, I, wanna, I, yeah. I mean, I thought it was because he dropped it. That's why everything was broken. He probably was lying that he dropped it because he didn't want to admit that his he's a weak man. But he heard him drop it, which is what made him like go over to talk to him in the first place. Uh, he, he heard, heard it. No, he heard crash. it fall. He didn't hear him drop yeah. it. Huh. That's what Weird. I thought when I Boom. saw it too. I was dropped like, the mic. I made Sarah think. Mission accomplished. I made Sarah, as if Sarah doesn't think all the as time. As if Sarah doesn't think already. Nope. There's a lot of subtleties, no, I'm though. I'm kidding. You just got I a death it. stare. <laughs> she just whip-snapped me with daggers. Ooh, <laughs> no, enjoy it That was lasts. a joke. It was, it's I all, know, it's all it cool was. down, people. <laughs> you um, can't cool down in here. We don't have AC running. So <laughs> I was thinking about a Farkley. <laughs> <laughs> You're tearing me apart, Lisa. You're tearing me apart. I love approaching this film from a psychological perspective. I know, it is very, very yeah. interesting, but let's talk about the performance. Let's do it! Because James Dean, holy shit, I love <sighs> the fact that he plays he's, okay, first of all, I do want to talk about one very crippling defect that Jim Stark's character has, which is, it's sad because we didn't have it diagnosed back then, but we have a we have a term for it now, and it's called Marty McFly syndrome, <laughs> where you cannot handle being called a chicken. <laughs> Oh, What's the matter, true. you chicken? Everybody stops, and then he cuts to that Ellen Sylvester. Da, 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 da. I know. <laughs> do you think? Do you think that they got that in uh, Back, in, to, Back future to Future? Because this, I'm almost positive they did. Probably. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Look, he's got white shirt, jeans, red jacket of sorts. And I will say, up. I will say, I get why James Dean exudes sex appeal in this movie because oh he's confident God. as shit in this he's movie. So sexy. Yeah. At the same time, he's not that confident. He's very unsure of himself, and he breaks down it's pretty feigned. often. It's feigned so confidence, it's feigned. but it's still confidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's and he's yeah. You he, wonder. He's, well, he's going in there with like a little bit of bravado, trying mm-hmm. to 
you know, make friends with these new people. And obviously they don't want to be friends yeah. with him. And he's just trying to make a new start. And he's already like off on a bad yeah. foot completely yeah. unintentionally. He's competent in that he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing or what the fuck is going on. Dude, yeah. You guys, apparently in the knife fight scene with Buzz, uh-huh. they used Horrible. real switchblades. What? And they were wearing chain mail under their clothing. Whoa. Whoa. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah, but that, mm-hmm. that scene was so fucking <laughs> garbage. Yeah. It was such garbage. Dude, I just thought the knife fighting was so unreal. There was there was no realistic knife fighting in West Side Story, and that was choreographed dance fighting. Apparently, apparently, one of the teenage members of like their group was an actual LA gang member. Wow! wow. And they used him as a creative consultant on the film. That's good old Hollywood. I'm a creative consultant and stabbing shit. (laughs) That's good old Hollywood verisimilitude, folks. Straight (laughs) up, dude. No qualms about it. I love it. Mm -hmm. Well, I I mean knife fight aside I, you, the, what I really liked was there was the scene between Jim and Judy when <laughs> she's like waiting for him outside his house uh-huh. and they're just kind of talking and he just kind of like flops down on the grass right by her and they're just kind of talking and he kind of goes and he like leans up on the car and he's kind of leaning awkwardly up on oh, the car and asking so... like if she wants to like go up to the mansion with him or whatever and like but the whole time that he's doing that it's like he's just being an awkward teenager who doesn't really know, like, he's trying to be cool, but, like, at the same time, yeah. he's kind of nervous. Yeah. And so yeah. I totally got it. And Jameson I was good at loved that. it. That was yeah. such a good, yeah. It, I think that's uh, yeah, why, it was great. why Dean was so relatable to teens yeah. at the time. Besides the fact that he was attractive and he yeah. exuded yeah. his, you know, yeah. sexuality. He was incredibly realistic on screen. He with was. the awkwardness, with he the, was. you know, the shiftiness, the sort of constant tension that mm-hmm. existed yeah. in his body yeah. you know yeah yeah and you know i i liked his performance but i, I take issue with natalie wood in that movie dude she, natalie oh, wood what? had to apparently fight really hard for the part yeah she had to get in a yeah. fucking car accident to yeah. prove to the director that yeah. she w- could be a juvenile delinquent quote no, 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 no no what happened is that the doctor who was treating her in the hospital called her a juvenile delinquent yeah, she's like see breath, see and she looks at nicholas ray the director and goes see what he said can i get the part now wow <laughs> yeah. apparently she had changed her look had started acting differently had a freaking affair with the director oh my god just so nice. she could try to skewer it roll and he still wouldn't give it to her and until she almost know, fucking died in a car accident with I'm, Dennis Hopper you know I'm kind of <laughs> wishing not to speak ill of that I'm kind of wishing Nicholas Ray had stuck to his guns because I feel like and who casted who Jane Mansfield <laughs> no I, I don't know who else but like Natalie Wood's a good actress but not in this movie not in this movie I thought her chemistry with James really? was pretty good no I, I think she, she was over the top yeah. she was over the top I and I thought felt... she was over the top but I thought the content was over the top and I thought that was the point yeah. no, I don't think Natalie Wood's performance is believable at any point and I also don't think her relationship was well developed with Jim I didn't believe okay. it when all of a sudden she fell in love with him because it yeah. happened within the span of like 30 seconds yeah well yeah and that's teenagers. <laughs> so that being said, though, we did speak on the fact that the film is melodramatic. Yep. And yeah. Sean? Natalie Wood's performance, like I said before, was kind of hokey in certain parts, but I thought that that was part of the entire film. James Dean's performance, you know, transcends the content where he was very realistic. You believed him. You believed his awkwardness. And she wasn't... I don't think that her job in her performance was to match that. I think that since he was the focus, he's the one that we're supposed to identify with and see as realistic. And since he sees everything as so backwards and so fucked up, and so do these other kids, that they can also be part of that fucked up environment. We're seeing it through Jim's eyes. Yeah, I agree. I also think that this was a really... like. 
kind of story where James Dean was so real that it almost became like his charisma mm -hmm. was so magnetic yeah. and so attractive yeah. that you know characters like Natalie Wood's character and Salmoneo's character, you know Judy and Plato, they just latched onto that, and yeah. they were the weaker characters, and they were they were drawn to him because of something he offered. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure, and I think. I think really, uh, like I was saying, it's it. That's a teenage. It's a very teenage thing to be like, mm -hmm. I'm in love. When really, it's like my cooch is throbbing for you, mm -hmm. and you, like, you know, the really... sense of identity. And as what, well. the way yeah. you said that, that was just on par with how Natalie would deliver those lines in the movie too. <laughs> wow, my coochie wow. is on wow. fire. <laughs> is this what it's like to be in love? Oh, well, I love that, that, that scene. But I think I think she really just doesn't. I think. They just don't have an understanding of what love really is, and that mm. that's what came through. The honestly, the part, the only like real part I think of the whole movie that I actually legitimately legitimately had a thorough problem with that it was actually it's what left a bad taste in my mouth was at the very end mm -hmm. when after spoilers um, after they're taking Plato's body away, yeah, and um, then you know Jim has his little breakdown. I love the fact that he goes and he like gloms onto his father and just oh, hugs and cries what a resolution Great. so good so yeah. good but then after they take it away and he just puts his arm around judy and says this is my friend judy and then the parents just kind of turn and smile at each other and i'm like a kid just fucking died Ugh. you're like oh that's and they're like oh that's why he was so angsty he was uh, about a girl he's God. getting laid good for him <laughs> yeah, like that's no. what that was i was like Really? That was the bad of the writers trying to tie up loose ends. Yeah. Way too, with that way, that with didn't not that time. didn't work. I think no, they were too afraid yeah. of some sort of ambiguous ending sure. on it. I guess I don't know. Sure. But I well, thought it was. I thought it was really sticky. I just like. Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't like that. And then, I think. But I. But that last part though, where where James Dean just cl cries into the, his dad um, was so the, good. The, yeah. mo the movie left me wondering just what was the point. Mm -hmm. It just did. And I'll be totally fair. I, I probably need to give the movie a second viewing to give it I another shot. Too. You know, uh, oh, but I think I think you had it right, Brian. Actually, what was the point? What was the point of this kid being neglected? What was the point of them even becoming friends? It was so everything that they had built over the course of the few days that this movie takes place, the friendship, it just all got destroyed. It actually takes place. What in is the point? Is the point? It's from a little over twenty four hours. Three a.m. to three a.m. I read yeah. that as well. Yeah. It yeah. starts at three a.m. and it ends at three a.m. It's yeah. a twenty four hour just over fucked twenty four up hour period story. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. I mean, that's not really something you saw much of in nineteen fifty five. But you in know. the same vein, though, it kind of ties back to the title of the film at all. Rebel without a cause. Yeah. There was no cause for any of the senseless violence. There was no cause for any of the sort of melodramatic, you know, indecisiveness or in or uh, what's the word? Where the uh, I just completely blanked on the word. The toward, the sort of um, where they just do it without thinking. Mm. You know, they're extemporaneous. Just in, extemporaneous or even impulsive. Impulsive. Impulsivity. The impulsivity here. This is where they think they succeeded at portraying teenagers who are ba battling their hormones yeah. and are thinking through their hormones. Okay, mm -hmm. fair enough. Fair you point. Know? Fair point. They're going to be melodramatic. They're going to be nonsensical. They're going to be violent. They're going to be this, that, and the other. Either way, they're not going to make any sense because teenagers yeah. don't make sense because teenagers don't know who the hell they are. Sorry no. to yeah. all of our teenage point. listeners. Yeah. No, I mean... <laughs> Brian, I, what was my... Uh, teenage nickname our aunt tanya had for us. oh you rebel without a clue yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i mean you got to look at it this way that teens are in a constant state of flux yeah they're always going to be searching for that identity and that their moods are going to shift from mm -hmm. one day to the next one day they're on one day they're off 
it's it's in a constant state of who knows what the fuck is going to happen next. Speaking of who they are and what their mood is, Roxy. Yes, sir. Take it away with a psychoanalysis. Okay. You have two minutes. No, Welcome okay. to the office. No. <laughs> Welcome to my very special analysis. We call this, the segment is called Dr. Roxy's in the house. She's made slides. <laughs> yes. Hello. <laughs> I've taken on the Freudian accent <laughs> okay um i kind of don't want to also touch on um the homoerotic content yeah. thank you film. okay there is kind of freudian elements to be spoken of there yes backstory <laughs> yeah james dean does have i mean no, the problem is is things have only been con- confirmed after his death yeah but um you're saying he was a little curious no he was he sexually was, ambiguous he, he was sexually ambiguous he was for i mean however we could identify him bisexual no definitely and yeah. he experiment he like he would always call it experimentation mm-hmm. with other men or whatever but mm-hmm. um he was just a lover of people yeah and you well, know and more power to him <laughs> if you read on the road i mean that's you know we're talking about right around this time period alan ginsburg writes about <clears throat> his involvement with a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is uh, Actually, in very intimate details about it. It was all during Things. the same time period. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Homosexuals are being arrested for lewd <clears throat> acts. Yeah. You know? yeah. Right. So And they made the same argument at this point in time that mm-hmm. the whole coming out of the closet thing mm-hmm. comes or it gets coined around this point in time because of McCarthyism, because of what's going on. You know, yeah, it's exactly. it's it's tantamount to communism, which is ridiculous. Okay. And you know, uh, it there it alludes to um, the way the Jews felt in the Holocaust. Literally, that's why they, the term comes from is because there were Jews hiding in the closet. Yeah. They felt like the homosexuals were hiding in the closet. It's it's really impactful stuff. <clears throat> but kind of taking it back to Rebel, how they really chose to approach it was with Plato's relationship with Jim. And Plato himself, there's even a scene where he opens his locker door and there's a p- pinup picture of Alan Ladd on the door. Yeah. You yeah. don't see it very clearly, but you know that it's... No, oh, you yeah. You can see it. Yeah. yeah, you can see it. Well, so that's a moment right there that you can tell that Plato is someone who is deeply troubled, but also, okay. you know, closeted. But and I think it's I think it's actually kind of... Hmm. Offensive? Yeah. No, it is offensive no. because it's assuming, <laughs> yeah. assuming that if you're homosexual, you're Feminine. deeply disordered. Yeah. yeah. And even kinda... even Jim's dad, you know, with the whole apron thing, here you go with someone who is deeply troubled in the sense that he has no moral conduct and that he has no backbone. Yeah. And he's almost effeminate. Because being feminine is a bad thing, apparently. So you're like, oh my god, Jim's mom, how she's so, you know, assertive and strong-willed and almost kind of like a beard for yeah. her. Yeah. <laughs> is that what it is where it's like... It's like, is it like when well, you're... a beard is a beard is just <coughs> a cover. Yeah, a fake significant other of the opposite gender to cover up. So you make you think like was things. Jim's mom, Jim's. Dad's I beard. really do not think that at all. I you <laughs> yeah. know I, I, I know. think that is reading a lot into it. I think Isn't that's people it? trying to put stuff into it. Sure. I think what is there is the scene where um, Plato is asking Jim to come over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, you want to come over? No one's home. You can you can stay over. To, well, I'll make you breakfast in the morning. The, yeah, the way he looks at him yeah. is so homoerotic. Here's the thing: the first time I ever saw the film, my initial reaction was, "This is a kid who's just really lonely who wants." Yeah, to he's yeah. That's what I thought too. Yeah. I what I did see though. I mean, if we do want to put the homoerotic <clears throat> context into Once it, we do that. Yeah, and and when Plato says that to him, what you see from Jim is, no, 
but I'm extremely sympathetic to your situation. There exactly. You he go. does respond with compassion. So here's something I looked up recently. It's a Vanity Fair article done in 2005. It's called Dangerous Talents. And it basically is a retrospective on the making of Rebel Without a Cause. And here they talked about how one time director Nicholas Ray, screenwriter Stuart Stern, Dean, and Mineo all intended, actually, for Mineo's character to be subtly but definitely understood as gay. Um, and so even though the production code was still very much in effect and forbade any mention of homosexuality, all of these these four people all worked together to insert re- restrained references to the homosexuality and attraction to Jim, including the Alan Ladd pinup, um, Plato's adoring looks at Jim, like we talked about, um, the talk with Jim in the mansion, mm-hmm. you know, and the name Plato, which is a reference to the classical Greek philosopher and Greek, you know, their whole thing on homosexuality there, how it was so open in that yeah. sense. Um, and here's one something interesting. For that mansion scene where they are talking about that stuff and where, you know, Plato presents the idea, let's all be a family, you know, you guys will be my mom and dad and I'll be your kid, like that whole fantasy thing. Uh, apparently, Dean had suggested to Mineo that Plato should look at me the way I look at Natalie. Mm. So Dean Ooh. was in effect, you know, really yeah. a supporter yeah. of their being homosexual themes and that tension and that struggle those, to... Those undertones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and yeah. the fact that both the director and the writer were even on board with that. Yeah. I think definitely this film knew what it was doing. So well, then the way we said earlier that <clears throat> because it was the 50s that they would they're kind of making it <clears throat> look like he was just confused. Now that we know that, it seems more like they're just adding it to the idea of choosing and finding your identity when you're that age. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it is fair to say that he's struggling with identity and with his crippling loneliness and the fact that he was deeply disturbed. Anybody who for no reason takes another life yeah. like that, like just shooting puppies, is, yeah. is I mean, that's how Jeffrey Dahmer started. So Yeah, yeah but and I feel like, though, the understanding of it at that point in time wasn't what we knew now. We didn't know Maybe. at that point that that was a, a symptom though, of psychopathy. But I bet you, though, it was a callback to the original title Yeah, that's exactly, book, that's exactly what I thought. That yeah. is exactly because, what no, I no, thought. No, 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 here's the thing. Antisocial personality disorder has been in the books for a really long time. Since the first DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychological okay, Disorders, was created. Antisocial personality disorder, which is, you know, the classic psychopathic disorder and personality, mm-hmm. has been well known. And it has been established through research done on a lot of original understood. serial killers. Uh, understood, but did we have profiling enough to that point where we knew that people who have those disorders had a tendency to inflict harm on animals at that sure, point? Sure, absolutely. Yes. yes. No, okay. it's been in the books for a really long time. There's, okay. there's a, it's almost like a trifecta. You, um, it's called enuresis, where you wet the bed um, and you hurt animals and you, uh, you do one other thing. Um, but either way, there's this sort of uh, triad that they, what they call it, basically. And you have these three sort of um, signifying characteristics that you show early on mm-hmm. from childhood. Because personality disorders, they originate from basically the first moment that you're a baby. It all stems back to the attachment you have with your parents. It all stems back to the trauma you experienced as a kid. Um, it's all really trauma-based. And here yeah. we have Plato who lost his father to, you know, a horrible tragedy. So this kid is obviously seriously structured yeah. to not be able to do relate we, to others. Do we, we, actually, really know, we don't really know no, how. I mean, that, but the fact is that he still harms animals. Well, yeah, and yeah, his yeah. attraction to Jim is so uncomfortable no, and absolutely. awkward. Yeah, yeah absolutely. His, his inability to relate 
Yeah. Is something that you look at. Yeah. His trauma is not that his father died. His trauma is that his family collapsed. Exactly. Um, well, we, we don't know what happened to his father, but we know that his his mom is is just not in the picture either. Yeah. But yeah. It, but they're not together. The, either way, the attachment yeah. there. Yeah. The attachment. I think the sure. idea of having like a broken marriage still def- is dramatic. Yeah. Well, yeah. Absolutely. No, absolutely, it is. Yeah. But I think that like, but again, it reflects the cultural ideals of the time too. Definitely. We are we are running close on time, folks. So yeah. does anyone want to make any final points before we wrap it up? Yeah. I it, just wanted to say one other thing that James Dean's performance in this movie has has echoed throughout history so much so that I see now after watching this movie, like how many actors today embody James Dean or try to be like James Dean. Like the whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, Oh my God. In his early career, like Benicio del Toro was just straight up doing James Dean. Yeah. Or Brad Pitt's had James Dean moments. Mm -hmm. Ryan Gosling in Mm -hmm. drive was Mm -hmm. a lot, had a lot of James Dean going on. You know, I also think that makes sense why they also made comparisons between him and, River Phoenix and oh, Heath yeah. Ledger absolutely. as well. Yeah. Not, not just because of the premature death, but because of their their amazing acting ability. That just the method yeah. acting yeah. idea. Yeah. You know. Well, and one thing is really cool. I, re- I was reading a story just about James Dean, but it was from East of Eden, mm-hmm. where I guess there's one scene where um, he kind of has like this breakdown moment, and in the script, it was just like he was just going to be staring at his father, and he, they were just going to yeah. stare silently, and he actually without telling the other actor just goes up and hugs him and cries and and like and then (laughs) and the actor like was just like the guy who's playing the father was just like what the fuck is going on he had pissed the actor he had like no idea what was going on he was like what is he doing but they kept it in the scene Mm -hmm. because it was such an honest performance apparently dean dean was notorious for doing every single take differently yeah and for surprising actors and for frankly yeah pissing off classic actors because his method was so unusual Mm -hmm. and his approach was so uncomfortable yeah because like i said dean's charisma dean's access to his emotions and his yeah. ability to maintain that tension in a scene was something that really you know threw a lot of people off fun fact marlon brando did not like james dean no in kidding. fact in commenting on his performance in red Bull without a cause thought it was rip off of his performance in the wild ones wow. he, he claimed he quote said quote he was wearing my last year's clothes and my last year's talent that's sad considering Jealousy. the fact that you know Brando even auditioned for Rebel, but apparently his audition piece wasn't meant for Rebel. It was just an early reading for the studios yeah. based off of an early draft of the Rebel script. Right. Um, so it wasn't even the draft that was exactly. But it was Brando early. and Dean were getting compared all the damn time. So yeah, Brando sounds jealous to me. You know? Yeah, and well, it's, it's like Harvey Dent said. You either die a gorgeous young actor or you live long enough to see yourself become a fat ass. <laughs> Fair enough. There you go. There Truth. you go. But I would totally have sex with James Dean with James Dean's talent. Cool. Um, well, absolutely. You say his corpse. No, his talent. We, we, I'd, we I'd have sex with his corpse. Of course you would, Sean. So. so let's get to some listener feedback. Listener feedback. Yeah. Folks, if you hadn't noticed, we're doing a reduced episode this time because we are switching our production schedule to a bi-weekly recording. So some of the feedback we've gotten is recent, but it'll be also read in the next episode as well because we want to have enough to share across both episodes. Um, we got to backtrack because on July 2nd, we got a feedback from Coralie about our Patriot episode. Mm-hmm. And it writes, uh, hello, I've been enjoying Nerds on History for about two weeks now. And today I listened to my first Nerds on Film episode about The Patriot. Yay. Nice. Uh, she says she doesn't watch a lot of movies, but the hosts were so funny that it didn't bother me that she hadn't seen the movie. 
we mentioned, she talked about that, she said, you mentioned the inaccuracies a couple times, and I was wondering if there was a disclaimer of sorts warning the audience. It would be great if there was a message to inform the audiences of the movie intending to, to be historical fiction. Oh, let me please answer that. Yes. After every single movie, even ones that are based in truth, sometimes, at the very end, the very end of the credits, it says, all of the events in this movie are based in fiction, blah, 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 no intention of anybody... No intention of uh, no depiction. Any connection to existing persons living or dead is unintentional. Yeah, yeah, it's unintentional. So that is their disclaimer. You have to sit through all of the credits. The music's almost all the way faded out, and then they show it to you yeah. right before sad. they show you the MPA rating for the yeah. last time. And that's their that's their legal escape clause. So that's so sad. Um, she does continue to say thanks for the great podcast, Nerdonomy from Coralie. So thank you, Coralie. Thank for you that. for listening. Welcome. Welcome to our crazy town. Let us take you into our cozy bosom. Let us take you, indeed. <laughs> Please, looks like Sarah listen. Kitties. Just listen. I believe we have a couple of emails, too, to read, don't we? Uh, possibly. Apparently one of our reviews for Cinequest got mentioned on a blog. Oh, yeah. yeah. The review I wrote for Parallel Maze got mentioned on a, another blog. That was pretty rad. That, I, that like kind of awesome. made, my, made my day. The review is for a film called... Parallel Maze. Parallel Maze. And I know. It's, I wrote it. I'm sorry. I was blanking <laughs> That's out. what I just um, said. <laughs> Parallel Maze. I'm sorry. It was reviewed on the site called popcornandvodka.com. Yep. And uh, I guess they had cool. an interview with the director. Yeah. Good job, Sarah. Thanks. On Twitter, Motion Picture Meltdown did tell us, uh, we plug NOF Weekly. We've gotten some on-air love, too, from Nerdonomy. If you like us or hate us, just leave us a review on iTunes. So that was kind of a mixed plug for them and for us. Thank you very much. That's cool. Sweet. Good old Steve Rosenberg from the Motion Picture Meltdown has been a fan and a contributor to our feedback for a long time. Cross-promotion's great. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. You're amazing. We Go love listen you. to Motion Picture Meltdown. Yeah, <laughs> we've been trying to get on, on their show, and they've been trying to get on our show for a long time. We just our wires have been crossed every time we've tried doing it. So it'll happen eventually. One day. So uh, you know, if you like what you've heard tonight, you can give us some feedback. You can do so by going to our social media or clicking on our feedback link on nerdonomy.com. And hey, Sarah, what else can you do when you go to nerdonomy.com? Uh, you can give us some money. Uh, you jerk can... off to our pictures. <laughs> you can do that too. Um, but Roxy after... really just wants to know that some guy out there is jerking off to her picture. Am or I girl. that transparent? Or girl. <laughs> or, or girl. Let's be fair. Just some person. Just some person. Yeah, um, some girls out there diddling the skittle to your picture. Roxy. <laughs> to quote Janine Garofalo, I'm really interested in for a mammal, and I'm actually quite flexible about that. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, uh, click that donate button, give us a little bit of money, you can give as little as a dollar through PayPal, or you can give us as much as you really feel like it. Um, the more the better as far as we're concerned. But yeah, we've got some projects we're working on, and we'd love to have your help and show us some love, so thank you. I still say if you make that button look like a clit, more people are going to click on it. Sure, only some of them are going to donate, but more people are going to click on it. You can dream. <laughs> we can dream. Uh, yes, you can. If, if you uh, also have it, uh, you can also support us through our Audible affiliation by clicking on that link on the right, and we will get a small commission if you get a free trial or a subscription to audible.com, so... Folks, it's that time, so stay nerdy until we meet again, and tune in to us next week. Stay, spit, same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye. See ya. Bye. Later. And roll credits.
And now, famous movie quotes you should not say during sex. You're tearing me apart! You're tearing me apart! <laughs> <laughs>